Today on Blue 58, conflict with their quarterback notwithstanding, the Green Bay Packers appear to have a pretty solid football team heading into 2021, but uncertainty at one position group could be their undoing, or a tremendous strength. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, happy to be with you here for another episode. You may have noticed there was no episode last Friday, I'm sorry for that. There were some circumstances uh, just beyond my control that um, prevented recording that day. Uh, we were supposed to have some work done around the house, and as uh, things so often happen, uh, the person who was supposed to be doing that work on our house was late that day. We also had some unexpected, I want to put it that way, family visits. All good. Uh, my parents, who had not been in town for a year due to the pandemic, uh, were suddenly able to come. Uh, and earlier than expected. So that just bumped everything back a little bit, and I figured why try to jam it in and uh, give you half an episode or a lower quality episode. We just wait until today, I figured. So here we are. And I'm hoping you are ready for a fun episode because we've got some fun things to talk about, especially Chapter 2 of Blood, Sweat, and and Chalk. We are into our discussion of that book. We'll do Chapter 3 on Friday, Thursday, Friday, whatever, uh, later this week, and I think we'll be on a chapter of day or chapter and episode after that. So if you want to start reading a little bit ahead, that's the way to do it. But in the meantime, as we talked about up top, I'm a little bit concerned about a potential weak spot on the Packers. And I was kind of thinking through this the last couple of days, thinking about what or, or how exactly I wanted to talk about this. A, a few episodes back, we did the boom or bust players in Green Bay episode 428, so two or three weeks ago now. And I was trying to come up with a way to do the exact opposite of that. Who are the unheralded players that we're not talking about enough? Is there somebody on this team that could change the fortunes of the Packers that we're not really talking about, that isn't necessarily going to have a super huge role on the team one way or another? I'm not looking for guys... Like Marquez Valdez-Scantling is a perfect example. If he has a great season for the Packers, I mean, it, it's not unusual or or it wouldn't be weird if he really puts it all together for him to have like 1,100 yards and eight touchdowns or something like that. I don't think that's that far outside the realm of the, po- of, of the possible. He could really explode. A couple hundred yard games here and there, more consistent performance throughout the season, boom, a thousand yard season. But if things don't go well for him, you know, it could be another 2019-type season where he just slowly fades away to nothingness as the season goes on. There are guys at kind of the other end of the spectrum that are just going to kind of be there. And you don't really, you're not really going to talk about them either way. So who are those players? I tried to come up with a list, but I just kept circling back to a group of two or three players. And they all happen to be on the interior offensive line. I've written about this at thepowersweep.com, and we're just going to talk through this topic a little bit. I think the Packers have a little bit of a problem brewing here because they've got, right now, uncertainty at three interior offensive line positions. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. want to unravel it a little bit more. So first and foremost, part of the problem here is that Elton Jenkins is out at left tackle for the foreseeable future. I know the coaching staff is saying great things about Ben Braden. I do not believe those things because why would Ben Braden take that starting left tackle spot when they've got a perfectly capable tackle in Elton Jenkins and they've got a plethora of other players that can play on the interior line. But those interior linemen, 
there is a problem there. All, virtually all of them, are just about as green as green grass. I don't know. I was trying to come up with a really green thing there. All I could think of is grass, maybe because I spent a bunch of time working on my yard yesterday. They're, they're young. They haven't played a lot, and that could be a problem for the Packers. How big a problem? I think fairly considerable. Look at it this way. Since Brian Gutekunst became the Packers general manager, he has drafted eight offensive linemen. All of those players is or was, I guess in the case of Cole Madison, who's no longer in the team or even in the league, were drafted primarily or exclusively to be interior offensive linemen, guards or centers. Then six of those remaining, I guess, seven picks, if you're counting out uh, Cole Madison, have come in the past two years. And among them is 2021 second-round pick Josh Myers, who we have talked about fairly at a fair bit of length before. Of the prospects, other than Lucas Patrick vying for starting jobs in size, he is probably the, in inside, he is probably the most polished prospect. Good size for a center, pretty athletic, long-time college starter at a big-time program in Ohio State, but he has not yet taken an NFL snap. Same pretty much goes for the other draft picks from this year in Royce Newman and Cole Van Lannan, though they are far less accomplished than Myers was in college. Same kind of thing goes for the Packers' 2020 draft picks. Simon Stepanak and Jake Hansen both have yet to appear in an NFL game, and John Runyon, while he played, only played 160 snaps last year. So you've got a bunch of inexperienced guys and then Lucas Patrick. What about Lucas Patrick, though? I think he's an example of kind of what's at stake here for the Packers because when Corey Lindsley was hurt towards the middle of last season and the Packers had to move a bunch of people around on the offensive line, Lucas Patrick was one of those guys who got moved around. He moved from right guard to left guard for a little bit. Uh, he filled in for Elton Jenkins while Elton Jenkins was playing center. And things did not necessarily go very well for the Packers when Lucas Patrick had to do that. According to Pro Football Focus, Patrick's three worst games were against the Colts, Eagles, and Panthers. What do those three teams have in common? They've all got pretty solid defensive lines. And how did that work out for the Packers? Well, Aaron Rodgers was sacked 20 times last year, and eight of those 20 sacks came in those three games, including five against the Panthers. Lucas Patrick got especially worked in that one. So I think that shows a little bit of what's at stake there. So whether it's Aaron Rodgers or Jordan Love, if the Packers have uncertainty in the middle of their offensive line up front, there are going to be some potential problems. I like Lucas Patrick as much as the next guy, but he has not been a perfect player. But let's just set that aside for a second because I do like him. There's a lot to like about Lucas Patrick. For instance, He's a real tough guy. He's going to be full throttle all the time whenever he's on the field. So even though he's not the most athletic guy in the world, and he is pretty athletic for an offensive lineman, even just for a professional football player, he's a pretty good athlete. He's not an elite athlete, and he's not necessarily the most polished player either, but he is experienced. But setting that aside for the second, is there an upside to these young guys altogether? I think there is. 
Relative athletic score is something we talk about an awful lot on this podcast because it translates pretty well to what you see on the field. Athletic players have more upside and have more success in the NFL than unathletic players. And in John Runyon, in Royce Newman, in Cole Van Lannan, you've got three guys that have scored eight or higher on the relative athletic score, which signifies an elite tester. On top of that, even though neither of them tested in their respective draft years, both Josh Myers and Simon Stepanak were both praised for their athletic ability in the lead-up to the draft. Josh Myers was said to be a a great fit for zone-blocking teams because of how athletic he was. Stepanak has tremendous strength, even among offensive linemen. 37 reps at 225 on the bench press. That is good stuff. So I think, inexperienced aside, the Packers do have a bit of cushion here. Their prospects don't have a ton of experience, but they've got athletic chops to make up for it. Still, though, this is a huge gaping question, a huge potential hole on the offensive line heading into the season. Your feelings about Billy Turner may vary, but I think he's better than any of the prospects the Packers have going on on the interior line right now, assuming that Jenkins is out at tackle. But however you may feel about him, he's a far more known commodity than Runyon, than Myers, than Jenkins, than Newman, than Van Lannan, than Stepanak, heck, even Jake Hansen. That is a big question mark heading into this season. That's 60% of your offensive line. Even if you like Lucas Patrick, I still think it's fair to, to say he's a bit of a question mark. This could cost the Packers. And if Corey Lindsley goes out and have a, has a great season this year, I think people are going to ask that question a little bit more loudly about why the Packers re-signed Aaron Jones instead of Corey Lindsley. I still think it was probably the right move to let him let him walk at that price. But the Packers are a little bit behind the eight ball, having to train up these guys pretty quickly. Shifting gears here, let's look ahead a little bit to 2021. I like to do this every year. Who's going to make a big charge up the, up the leaderboards um, this season? Packers have a few big names that are going to be passing some even bigger names this year if they, if they produce. First and foremost, Aaron Jones has a chance to make some real hay on the all-time leaderboard this year. So he's had 2,000-yard seasons the last two years under Matt LaFleur, which has pushed him to just over 3,300 career rushing yards. He's only a little under 100 yards behind Eddie Lacy for number 10 on the Packers' all-time rushing leaderboard. And if he has 1,000 yards again in 2021, he is going to pass some big names. How big? How about like Paul Horning? Dorsey Levins and Ryan Grant, even Tony Canadeo. If Aaron Jones passes a thousand yards this year, he is going to be pretty comfortably in fourth place on the Packers all-time rushing leaderboard that is behind only Amon Green, Jim Taylor, and John Brockington in the history books. That is pretty cool. Secondly, Don Hudson may be getting some company at the top of the Packers receiving touchdowns leaderboard. Nobody's going to catch John Hudson. 99 career receiving touchdowns. Good luck. Currently, only Jordy Nelson is within 30 of Don Hudson. And Nelson scored a lot of touchdowns. 69 of them, to be precise. 
But while Devontae Adams has no shot of catching Don Hudson, not this year, maybe not ever, he could get as high as second on the all-time list this season because currently he has 62 touchdowns to his name and just eight scores would put him past both Jordy Nelson and Sterling Sharp, who accumulated 65 touchdowns in his career, shortened by injury though it was. And I've got to think Adams has a pretty good shot too. He's scored 58 touchdowns over the past five years alone, and he's only gotten or only failed to break into double digits once in that span. Let's switch over to defense here for a second. Who's going to make a big charge this year? Could be Zadarius Smith. Through two seasons in Green Bay, he's already got 26 sacks as a Packer. That is good for 13th in team history, tied with Santana Dotson, both of whom are just outside of the top 10. If he puts up another double-digit season, he could get as high as 7th on the Packers' all-time list for sacks. Uh, If he gets... 10 sacks exactly. He will be tied with Tony Bennett, who piled up 36 in the early 90s. But even if he gets just like, say, eight sacks this season, he's still going to make a pretty big jump. He will get past Cullen Jenkins and Mike Daniels, who have 29 apiece, Nick Perry and Vonnie Holiday, who have 32, and Bryce Pop, who has 32 and a half, to take sole possession of the eighth spot on the all-time list. And that's pretty cool. A guy that most Packers fans, I would say, hadn't even heard of when the Packers signed him in early 2019, could end this season in the top 10 on their all-time sacks list. And one here is a bonus. We all know Aaron Rodgers does not throw many interceptions, but even if he does play for the Packers this year, there's a chance he's going to end up in the top five all-time in terms of interceptions thrown. Through 13 seasons as a starter, he's only thrown 89 interceptions, just under half an interception per game. Just for comparison, Brett Favre threw 285 interceptions in 255 games with the Packers. That is an average of comfortably more than one per game. But if Aaron Rodgers throws two picks in 2021, he will knock Arnie Herber out of the top five in career interceptions thrown as a Packers player. Now that only goes to show really how few interceptions Aaron Rodgers actually shows. But the longer you play, the longer those negative stats even can pile up. And Aaron Rodgers is going to pass over a bit of a negative stat milestone here in 2021 if he ends up playing with the Packers. Just a little bit of a statistical curiosity there. Let's talk about blood, sweat, and chalk. Not those things precisely, the book that we are reading together. As a reminder, if you would like to get in on this, we are reading the book Blood, Sweat, and Chalk by Tim Layden. It is available wherever fine books are sold, especially on Amazon.com. That is where I got, well, no, that's not where I got my my copy. I know a couple people who have gotten theirs there, uh, but I got my copy, I think, at a half-price books or something. I recommend picking it up. It's a good time. We're going to be talking about it all the way through. And if you want to go a little bit deeper on your discussion, consider becoming a patron, patreon.com slash thepowersweep. Chuck in any amount of money that you think is appropriate, and you get access to our Discord server as well as some bonus content. But the Discord server is where we go a little bit deeper on our discussions about this book and uh, whatever else is going on with the Packers. It's a good time. You should check it out. Some of the people who you may run into in that space are Colin Bayer, Stephen Cantrell, and John Fry, each of whom have been patrons since 2020, and we are grateful for their support. So head to patreon.com slash thepowersweep. And throw in your support as well. You'll be able to discuss the book with us as well uh, in our private Discord server. Good place to hang out 
uh, and meet Packers fans from all over the world. So, Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, Chapter 2, The Wing T. A couple thoughts overall on this impression, or on this, uh, in this chapter. Love this quote. Football innovation repeatedly proves itself the product of coincidence of personalities thrown together and forced to improvise for the sake of survival. Love that. Necessity is the mother of invention, and necessity in football often stems from the desire to keep your job. Innovate, adapt, succeed, or die is sort of how this goes. Win games however you can, or get out and we'll find somebody else who can. And sometimes that may result in turning to offensive strategies that nobody has really tried yet. Also want to point out a great observation made by old Packers fan in our Discord server after our discussion of the of the last chapter. We were talking about the, the single wing and about how um, Jim Thorpe and others uh, ran it at the Carlisle Indian Academy to great success and, um, well, had a lot of success running that offense. And uh, our good friend, old Packers fan, points out that, yeah, that that's great, but it's it's a lot easier to have success when you've got a tremendous athlete like Jim Thorpe running the show. And that is something that we should point out in our discussion of all these offensive systems. It is great to have a system that works. It's even better to have players that can make your system work. X's and O's, not Jimmy's and Joe's, as the saying, saying goes. Players, not plays. That is true. But I think a great part of coaching, a huge part of coaching, something that probably went under appreciated in Green Bay for a long time is the ability to use or install offensive systems that take advantage of your players' skills. Who do you have? What can they do? How are you going to make that work? And that kind of brings us to the wing T, which was installed, as this chapter points out at the University of Maine, in part because the single wing was chewing up all their tailbacks, which is kind of funny if you think about where we are in the game today tailbacks in the single wing were probably closer to quarterbacks than they were to running backs, at least as far as we think of quarterbacks and running backs today. And a lot of teams and players, and I guess maybe especially fans, are afraid of things like having their quarterback run because of that very thing. Getting your quarterback, your primary ball handler, I guess is what we should say when we're talking about tailbacks and quarterbacks and all of those things, your primary ball handler get hurt. When you run, when you handle the ball a lot, you can tend to get hurt. And that does happen from time because their tailbacks are just getting beat to heck. And I can understand that. I've actually got some firsthand experience with a version of the wing tee. The wing tee was actually my introduction to playing full contact football. We ran a version of this back in Cedar Grove, Wisconsin, go Broncos in junior high football. And it's interesting thinking back, so many of the things that were talked about in this strategy, in this offensive system, is coming over from the single wing and working, also worked when we ran it. Ball handling, fakes going multiple directions, but still having a symmetrical offensive line. The practical embrace of the symmetrical line was a really interesting development in this in this chapter, I thought, because it was one of those things that seems like common sense to us today, but somebody had to sit down and actually invent it. Somebody had to say, well, why, why do we have so many much more or so many more of our blockers on one side of the line than the other? Well, having them on that side does give you an advantage, but it also tells the defense exactly where you're going to go. 
in the wing T, if your offensive line is symmetrical, there are so many more points of attack. You can attack in the middle, you can attack to the left, you can attack to the right without giving up a huge numbers advantage. And that's something that worked for us. The ball handling, the fakes going multiple directions, that is a holdover from the single wing, but people wanted to use that in the wing T from a little bit more balanced attack. And that's something that sticks vividly in my mind about playing football at that level at 6th, 7th, 8th grade. Sometimes you don't understand so much the strategy behind what you're trying to do. But I can remember so often our quarterbacks would execute a fake, fake to the left, fake to the right, and then finally a guy gets the ball. And all of a sudden he's 10, 15 yards downfield behind the defense, not necessarily having crushed a whole bunch of guys, the offensive line with blocking, but they just couldn't follow the ball. And since you don't always see all of that strategy playing out, it's tough as a kid to think, oh, I understand why all this or and how all this is working together. But that's the principle there. It's all the fakes, all the different movement. And you can see the roots of stuff like this even in, in the Packers offense today. Think of those split zone um, looks that they give you where Robert Tunyon comes behind the line basically blocking back on a defensive end on the backside of a formation after Aaron Jones has faked going to the other way. The fake gets everybody going one way. The flow of the offensive line gets everybody going one day, but back or one way, but back comes Aaron Jones with a blocker in front of him. And suddenly the defense may be in trouble. Also of note that uh, there are multiple things spreading throughout college football in this chapter. So David Nelson, a former Michigan coach and player, brings Tubby Raymond, a former Michigan player, and the wing T to Delaware. So Nelson and Raymond had both worked under Fritz Chrysler at Michigan. We know of Fritz Chrysler because he came up in the last chapter and a little bit in this chapter as running the single wing to great effect at Michigan. But Chrysler, famously, as we talked about in the last chapter, brought those winged helmets to Michigan from Princeton, and look what Delaware starts wearing in 1951 and still wears today a winged helmet as well. More than just strategy spreading throughout college football. Finally, talking about some Packers connections here, the last page of this chapter brings a couple incredible ones. Uh, first and foremost, Tom Clements playing as a single-wing cornerback under Era Parsegian at Notre Dame. He, of course, would later be the Packers quarterbacks coach and uh, offensive coordinator and assistant head coach under Mike McCarthy. Got to wonder, how did being a wing T quarterback affect his later offensive philosophy? We'll never know. But I got to imagine there's something kicking around in the back of his mind somewhere dating back to his, uh, his college years, especially being as effective as he was as a wing T quarterback. Also interesting that they mentioned the 73 Notre Dame team. That was Parsegan's second-to-last team at Notre Dame. He coached at Notre Dame until 1974, resigned that year uh, after a long, successful run at Notre Dame. And who takes over at Notre Dame after that? Dan Devine of the Green Bay Packers. Everything ties back to Green Bay sooner or later.
So I've got for you in this episode. Do appreciate you listening in. Thank you so much, if you are so inclined, uh, for sharing this episode. That is one of the best ways, perhaps the best way, that this show will grow and help more people find it is you. Share it. If you think somebody else would enjoy it, that would mean a lot to me. In the meantime, continue to talk about the Packers with me, with uh, with whoever else you can find, because talking with each other, sharing things like this, talking through books, talking about whatever's on our mind related to the Packers, it's going to help us all, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.